Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. In His presence is fullness of joy. And at God's right hand are pleasures evermore. There's something of a mystery, isn't there? When we come into God's presence, when we take time and we just settle our hearts, still ourselves, and we make room, we make space for God to do something. You're here this morning because you're making space. You're here this morning because you think it's important in your life as you grow to be together with God's family and to come with open hearts to receive. You're joining us by way of this broadcast today because even though you're not here physically with us, there's something about the presence of God joining you in your home that matters to you. So thank you for making space. Thank you for making room for God in your life today. Well, it's great to be back with you this morning. You know, Jesus at one point looked at his disciples who were highly motivated, were highly ambitious, and he said to them, And it was really an insight into humanity. But he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Last weekend, my spirit was willing. I was with you in spirit last weekend, but my body was putting a limit on me, letting me know that I was not going to be able to be here last weekend. So Saturday of last week, I uh, knew that I was, my body was failing me. For the week, I I knew I was off physically. By Saturday morning, I had had a fever. So I got a self-test of COVID, and it was negative, which I was thankful for. But how many of you know today that there are really only two categories of sickness? There's COVID and something else. (laughs) That's it. You either have COVID or you have that. And they don't even test for that anymore. They don't even care what it is, right? They just want to know, do you have COVID? So my doctor had me get the gold standard PCR on Monday. It came back Tuesday as negative. So I had something else. I had that. And I don't know what that was, but it was no fun. But I'm glad to be back. I've regained my strength this weekend. And I can tell you, to be very emotionally honest with you this morning, that the toughest part of being sick for me is not the physical part. I can carry the physical weight of sickness. What is hard for me when I'm sick is the emotional things that trigger in me. Because I begin to feel inadequate. I I feel uh, deficient. And all of those things mean that I need a larger dose of God's love when I'm feeling those things. So I sat a lot in God's love this past week because I was feeling inadequate and I was feeling deficient. And I know the only place for me to go with that is to experience God's love, to experience the love of my wife and the love of others as not just accepting me in my weakness, accepting me in my feeling of inadequacy, but letting me know that they still love me and fully accept me and celebrate me just as I am. And so I don't know how many of you can identify with that this morning, but, but listen, go easy on yourself. Give yourself grace when you get sick, especially men. Give yourself grace. It is okay to acknowledge I'm weak. It is okay to acknowledge I can't. 
and to bring that to God. Well, enough on that. We're here in a series called Rest in Mystery. And so this morning, those two words, rest and mystery, seem at odds, don't they? So mystery points to things that are unknown or uncertain. Whenever we can't explain something, whenever we don't fully understand or can grasp something, we simply call that thing a mystery. And you likely have already figured this out, but the Christian faith is filled with mystery. A triune God is a mystery. The incarnation, God in flesh, that's a mystery. The virgin birth, there's a mystery for you. Crucifixion, resurrection, those are mysteries. Angels are a mystery. Death is a mystery. The afterlife is a mystery. Heaven is a mystery. And the list could go on and on and on. We live with the tension of holding in our lives mysteries. And then there's this, that we as creatures, human creatures, we are by nature restless. As children, we fight sleep, but as adults, we fight rest. And our culture has not done us any favors when it comes to rest. Because in our culture today, rest is synonymous with weakness. It is not a sign of strength. It is a sign of weakness. If you're anything like me, you get a little tinge in your stomach and you'd rather not say it when you're feeling like you need rest. Why? Because it feels weak. It feels hard at times to say that. Try saying it to your boss this week. I'm going home to get a little rest and see how that works out for you, right? We, we, we in our culture and society, we don't give people permission to rest. And I don't, I don't know about you, but mystery does not usually bring me to a place of rest. Because I, for one, like to know. I would prefer to know, and I would prefer to be certain of things. I just typically rest better that way. But there's another way. There's another way to rest. There's God's way. It is the way that one of our spiritual forefathers, Augustine, talked about in his confessions when he said this, you, God, have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and my heart is restless until it finds rest in you. So in this series, Rest in Mystery, we are inviting us here at Grace Crossing Church to welcome mystery into our lives as a means of finding rest. I know that sounds strange. But the optimal word there is the word welcome. 
If I were to give a big idea to this series, here is what it would be. The degree to which we welcome mystery is the degree to which we rest in God. The degree to which we welcome mystery is the degree to which we welcome God. And it is the degree to which we worship God accurately because resting in mystery is resting in God. They are one and the same. You cannot separate the mystery of life and the mystery of our faith from God himself. So this morning, I'm bringing us to a passage. Psalm that I have been with now for actually several months. It is a psalm that I have been sitting in. I've been meditating on. It is a psalm that I've been prayerfully integrating deeper into my life. Before we get to this psalm this morning, which actually is filled with mystery, let me give you some context and let me give you the, the, the kind of narrative that sets up and frames Psalm 27 that we're going to look at this morning. It is believed by most scholars that Psalm 27 is written after David is anointed king, but before he is recognized as king of Israel, which scholars believe to be a period of about 15 years. It's also believed to be written during a time of war. Now, most of us know David as a shepherd boy turned king. What we forget is that in the middle of being a shepherd boy before he becomes king, David is an Israeli soldier. He is a commanding officer for the Israeli armies. David is valiant in battle. He's an accomplished soldier. And it is believed that David pens the words of Psalm 27. While Israel is in and out of wars, David is part of those wars. And Psalm 27 is broken into two real sections. So this week, I might encourage you to take Psalm 27 into your meditation time with God. If, you've, if you don't even know what meditation time is, let me just encourage you to carve out some space this week, every day, just even a few minutes, and read a couple of verses of Psalm 27. Hold this psalm this week prayerfully. And what you'll find is Psalm 27 is broken into two sections. Uh, it is a confession, and it's a prayer. Verses 1 through 6 are a confession. Verses 7 through 14 of Psalm 27, a prayer. And here is how David begins his confession in Psalm 27, verse number 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God used Psalm 27 to give me my word for 2022. It's actually two words. The words that God downloaded into my heart in December were the words, fear not, which I have come to understand as stay calm. Stay calm. When I was a young Christian, 
I was led to believe, and this nobody's fault, but I was led to believe that fear was sinful. That if I was afraid that I was actually sinning against God. So I cannot allow fear into my life. And the reality that I have learned is this, fear is an emotion. It's just like anger. It's just like sadness. Fear actually tells a story. It is not in and of itself sinful, bad, or wrong. What we do with it, how we respond to it, can lead us into sin, but it is in and of itself telling us a story. And it's a story God wants us to pay attention to. So I love that David actually begins this actual confession with an acknowledgement that fear is present. That fear is close. He begins with an acknowledgement that fear is amidst him and there is a real danger, imminent danger that he's experiencing. David actually comes to God with this acknowledgement of his fear. And he says this in verse number three. Though an army encamp against me, my heart, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. How many of you for the last number of weeks have been a little on edge watching what's happening in Russia and Ukraine? Hearing that at any moment we could have an all-out war, the likes that we have not seen since World War II in Europe. Reality is the, the presence of war, the nearness of war, the reality of war which we are dealing with every single day and you in the military know it better than I do. It can unsettle you, it can unnerve you. But God says this, and it's a reminder to us. Fear is something that God uses to bring us to him. It brings us closer to have faith in him. And faith is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of courage and confidence in the face of fear. God gives us his courage to face our fears so that we can have his confidence that all will be well. All will be well. And so David writes this in verse number 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So how does David begin his confession? He begins it with fear, but he begins it with something more important. In verse number one, let's reread what it says. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. The Lord is my light. He is my illumination. He is my luminary. The word here is actually speaking of a morning sun that actually begins to penetrate the darkness. I don't know how many times you do this, but I do it often. I did it this morning. I stand at my window as the sun is coming up, and I don't just watch the sun. I feel it. I let myself get swallowed up in it. Because it's a reminder to me that the Lord is my light. 
The Lord is also our salvation. The word means that he is the one who rescues us. He is the one who comes to our rescue. Look at verse number 10, what David says. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. And I identify with this verse. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He's my salvation. And he's also the stronghold of my life. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. When you hear this, think safe house. Think human trafficking. Think someone who is brought out of a place of threat and who's moved into a place where they can now feel safe. They can now know that they are protected. When David says the Lord is the stronghold of my life, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the name of the Lord that's a strong tower that the righteous run to and find safety in the midst of their circumstances in life. Look at what he says in verse number five about this. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. Listen, that just sounds gibberish until you experience it. But once you experience what it's like to be in the shelter of the Most High, to know what it's like to be covered by his tent, to know that he is the one that's lifting you up high, placing your feet on a firm foundation, you recognize that, yes, there's fear. But the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And then somewhere in the middle of Psalm 27, David goes mystical on us. David actually is in the middle of war. This is not an imaginary threat. This is a real threat. And though David's eyes are seeing all around him what's going on, his heart is somewhere completely different. He, he actually has his mind on only one thing, just one thing only, literally. And he tells it to us in verse number four. One thing. This verse feels almost displaced in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In the midst of all that David is experiencing, that's his one thing? This is what David's going to ask God for? This is the one thing David is going to seek after of all of the things surrounding him. Anointed king, but declined of the privileges that God had in store for him. Anointed king running for his life from Saul. Anointed king in the middle of war, 
not a king. He's a soldier. And his life is under grave danger. David could have asked God for anything. He could have said, God, the one thing that I seek after is that this war will end. The one thing that I'll seek after today that I'm going to ask you for is that you'll deliver me from my fear. It's not what David asked. David had one thing on his mind, one thing on his heart, one focus. And that one thing was that he wanted to attune to the presence of God. His one thing was that God would become bigger so his circumstances would become smaller. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you could ask God for only one thing today, just one thing, you can't ask him for multiple things. If you can only ask God for one thing today, what is it you would ask? What is it you are asking? What is it you have been asking? This passage in Psalm 27 has not changed my circumstances, but has reframed the way that I'm coming to God, the things that I'm asking of him these days. What is your one thing today? What is the one thing you desire, you long for, your heart burns for, more than anything else in life? I know you have a lot of other things you want to ask, but if you were limited to just one, could you echo the words of David and say, this one thing am I asking of you, God, this one thing I'm going to seek. And what was David seeking? This is so inner. This is a mystery. But David defines it as dwelling, gazing, and inquiring. Dwelling, gazing, and inquiring. None of it makes sense to you right now. Because there's a mystery in it. But what I want to do with God's help today is I want to unpack some of the mystery in it. I won't make sense of all of it because there will hold the tension of it doesn't all make sense. But there is things that I think God wants to make sense to us today so that we can rest in the mystery. When David penned these words, think about it. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to inquire in his temple, the temple had not even yet been erected. There was no temple in Israel. It was a pipe dream. That didn't come till the end of David's reign and his son was the one who built it. So obviously David here is envisioning something much deeper, much more significant than a place, than brick and mortar. He's seeing something by God's spirit of inspiration. He's seeing something God inviting him into. And he actually tells us what it is. The one thing that I ask of God, the one thing that I'm going to seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, that's a very popular motif in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 23 
Perhaps the most beloved psalm ends with those words. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is not just talking about something that's coming. He's not talking about something in the future only. He's talking about something that was very present today. In the scripture, the house of the Lord always refers to the place of presence. The place where God manifests or makes himself known to us in a way that we can get it. That we can experience him. In the Old Testament, it was the Ark of the Covenant that God used at times to manifest his presence. He did it through quail and manna. He did it through a rock. He did it through a traveling tabernacle, a tent that was set up in the wilderness when they would go from place to place to place. Finally, it was a temple. It was a place dedicated to God, but God was never, ever limited to buildings, to brick and mortar. It was always where his presence dwelled and made manifest. And Paul the apostle makes this crystal clear in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, when he writes this, Ephesians chapter two, in him, now listen to this, this is a mystery. In him, you are also being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Dwelling in the house of the Lord means that we actually get to see and experience God together collectively as the body of Christ. This is a profound mystery. We will never fully understand this. But when God said, I'm taking my son out of the world physically, but I'm gonna leave a physical presence, that physical presence was the collection of God's people. It was the family of God. It was the body of Christ. That was plan A and there was no plan B. We are, whether we like it or not, a representation. We are the face of Christ to the world. They're looking and they're seeing. They're seeing it good, they're seeing it bad, they're seeing it ugly at times. It isn't perfect. But there is a manifestation of God that comes when we are together as God's family. There's a manifestation of God that comes when one of us serves another. There is a manifestation of God that comes when we pray for each other. When you deliver groceries to somebody's door, when you bring a pot of soup in Jesus' name just to say, I'm praying for you, and we were loved well this past week. Those are manifestations of God's presence, and that is the place where God is. And, and David is saying, I want to dwell with God's people. I want to be together with the family of God. I want to see God manifest among us. And then he says this, one thing do I ask of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, this is mystical. This is a mystery. 
But I think we get insight into what David had in mind when David actually talks about the, the beauty of the Lord. The illustration comes in the creation narrative. Because in the creation narrative, we find God at the end of each creative day, the Bible says, looking at or gazing upon what had been created and saying it is good. In the Hebrew, the word could, could be translated beautiful. God looked and said, this is beautiful. God gazed upon the creation and said, this is beautiful. When God made man, God looked and said, this is very, this is very beautiful what I have made, what I've created. I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps one of the things David had in mind when he talks about this is not seeing the physical features of God because the Bible says no one has ever seen God. No one has ever looked at the face of God. I suspect what David had in mind was actually the creative beauty of God. The way in which we see God in his myriad of ways, in the multifacets of his beauty here on this earth. And, and the question this morning is, how do we best see the beauty of God? How do we best see God's creative beauty? And I would say in two places. I think it is the places and the faces of God's creation. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to let your mind wander right now to a place of beauty. Uh, something you feel when you look at it, when you think about it, it it's just beautiful. Maybe it was a, the perfect sunset. Maybe it was the perfect sunrise. Maybe it was that mountain range that you got to see. Maybe it was those waters that you were near. When you think of that place, do you see the beauty of the Lord? Do you see the beauty of God? Are you, can you remember gazing upon not just that thing, but God's beauty? I remember being in Kentucky a few years ago for the full solar eclipse. I saw the entire thing. It was beautiful. I was gazing at the beauty of the Lord. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget being with my family for a vacation, laying on the grass in August in upper upstate Michigan, watching the stars, the meteor shower, and just one after another blazing through the sky and remember myself thinking, this is the beauty of the Lord. It's easy probably for us to think of a place, but listen, friends, the whole of scripture teaches something else. 
that gazing upon God's creative beauty means gazing at faces. If we will take time to linger and gaze, we will not just see a person in front of us, but something more will emerge. Something else will, will come forward. It will be the beauty of the Lord. And over time, if we take time to look, to gaze, we're going to see something beyond a physical being. And let me tell you, the longer you gaze, the more beautiful it becomes. I think it is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke these words, the mystery of these words in Matthew chapter 25. Listen to what Jesus says. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Now listen how they respond. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And Jesus says this, the king will answer them, I tell you, the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. Jesus here is not simply getting at the doing. He is getting at the seeing. You know what people want who are without? They want to be seen more than anything else. Just ask the homeless person on the street what they want and need. Oh, they need food, but what they want more than anything is acknowledged. Do you see me as a human being? Do you see that I'm here? Listen, I, th I want to say to you this morning, I think one of the reasons we fail to see the beauty of the Lord is because we won't linger and gaze long enough to, into the brokenness of people to see the beauty of the Lord. Just... Let that settle on you today. A few years ago when Life and I went through a one-year process of leadership development, there was an experience called process groups where we as about 10 leaders came together. And during those process groups, nothing was off, off limits. It was an exercise in deep vulnerability and trust. And I got to see some incredible brokenness. But as that year went along, here's what I also began to see. I began to see the beauty of the Lord in the brokenness. I began to experience the beauty of God. The longer I gazed and the longer I would stay with it, the more the beauty of the Lord began to emerge. So one of the mistakes we made, we make in life is that we look at people and we judge them by what we see on the outside. If you will stay with people who are broken and not meeting up to what you think are God's standards or your standards, if you'll just stay with them long enough, you're gonna watch the beauty of the Lord emerge 
in a way you'll never see it without gazing. There's so much I'd love to unpack there, but I got to move to the next one, inquiring. David said, one thing do I ask of the Lord, that will I seek to inquire in his temple. Now, this too is a mystery. Because inquiring, I believe, involves two things. It involves curiosity and it involves questioning. But it is not just curiosity and it is not just questioning. It is a holy curiosity and it is a questioning that's not about probing for answers but is about discovering the secrets of the heart. I've been meeting actually for three years with a spiritual director. Um, we actually celebrated the three-year anniversary of our gatherings together. He doesn't say very much in our meetings. He's a very, very, very quiet man. But he said to me in our last meeting, you are an interesting man. I said, I've been called worse. <laughs> At the end of it, I actually looked at him and I said, and he knows I have trust issues. I brought them fully into our times together in the presence of God. But I said, it's only taken you three years to earn my trust. I kind of said it tug in cheek. And he said, it has not taken you nearly that long to earn mine. We embraced. And what I love about this man and the gift that he's been to me is he has a he shares with me a holy curiosity, but he asks questions that are not about probing, but are about gently leading me back to myself and to God. And where is God finding me? And where am I finding God? We do not have from God because we do not inquire of the Lord. And listen, inquiring of the Lord is not some abstract concept. We inquire of the Lord as we as God's people inquire of each other. How's your soul? How, how are you doing? Is everything well with your soul? Uh, and listen, here's the thing I've discovered. I do not want to be inquired and I don't want to inquire unless I feel permission and safety to do so. But when I feel safe to do so, then man, I... I will gently move there and I will gently let people move there with me. But it's not something you just jump into. Here's the thing. God invites us to inquire. God invites us. Isaiah chapter one, here was his invitation. I, the Lord, invite you to come and talk it over. <laughs> what a great invitation. This is God's invitation to us this morning, friends. God's invitation to us is to seek him above all else, to make seeking him our one thing, and to do that by dwelling, by gazing long enough, and by inquiring of the Lord. Now, listen, as we close this morning, there is a powerful illustration of this, profound illustration that's found in the Gospels. Jesus one day is going through the village of Bethany and the Bible says that a woman by the name of Martha greets him, meets him, and she invites Jesus into her home and says, come and join us. 
I have a sister at home named Mary. I want to just make you a meal. We're just going to share life together. And Jesus comes and it was amazing. In fact, so much so that Mary got so absorbed in the conversation with Jesus. She got so consumed with dwelling, gazing, and inquiring that she didn't lift a finger to help Martha. Martha gets downright angry at Jesus. She is ticked off. And here's what she says. Jesus, don't you care about me? Don't you care about me? If you care about me, tell my sister Mary to get up and help me if you care. Didn't rattle Jesus. Here's what he says in Luke's gospel. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. Anybody else here can identify with this this morning? Anybody else feel worried about things? Anyone else feel a little distracted at times? But then he says this, but only one thing, just one thing is necessary. One thing is needed. And he goes on to say, Mary chose the better part, the better thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. As our team comes this morning, I'm going to ask you to write down two questions that I'm going to have you prayerfully ponder in God's presence today. If you don't have a pen and paper, take out your smartphone, take out your tablet, whatever you have, because these are not just for this morning, but I'd, I'd like you to move this week with God and let God, let these questions begin to inform where you are in your life. <laughs> Here are the two questions that I want you to hold in the presence of God today and this week. <clears throat> Number one, what worries and distracts me most? these days <clears throat> what worries and distracts me most these days you probably won't have any trouble letting those rise to the surface here's the second question to ponder today what one thing am I seeking most these days if I had to limit it to just one, and you go, how will I know that? Just think of the thing you talk about more than anything else. When you go to prayer, that's the thing you're praying about. That's your one thing. And you know what I've discovered, friends? I'll just be brutally honest. I've discovered that my one thing is usually deliverance from my worry and distraction. That's usually my one thing. That's usually the thing that becomes the source if I'm not careful. And it's been God's invitation to me through Psalm 27, and I believe it's God's invitation to Grace Crossing Church that there's a better thing. There's a better place than worry. There's a better place than distraction. It may not remove it all. It may not make it go all completely away. It may not resolve itself. 
but your heart as you dwell and you gaze on the beauty of the Lord and as you inquire of the Lord, let me tell you, friends, it will lift your heart out of fear, out of worry, out of distraction. It doesn't make them go away, but it will put them in their proper place. I just have a hunch this morning that you'd like that, (laughs) that that would be a good thing for you, just like it is for me. I love how David ends the Psalm 27, and then with this, we'll move into a time of just quiet meditation. Verse number eight, here's what David says. You have said, seek my face. (laughs) That's God's invitation. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Your face, Lord, do I seek. If that hasn't been your prayer, would you offer it to God today as your prayer? Would you say, God, help my heart to seek your face. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.